Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping and general homesteading podcast. I'm your host, Gemma, and today I am continuing the book review of Honey Bee Democracy by Thomas Seeley. For today's episode, we are covering chapter three. And before I get onto that, let's do some homestead updates. So the first thing I want to talk about is Europa, my pink tongue skink, who in the last episode I mentioned had some kind of jaw injury that I was hoping was just a damaged tooth because the other option was a very nasty broken jaw. Well, it turns out that it was a broken jaw and those of you who follow me on Instagram might have seen pictures of her after her recovery or I suppose during her recovery after her surgery. Now, the bad news was that it was a bad break. What I was seeing as a tooth was actually a bone shard that was sticking out into her mouth. So it was an open fracture, never a good sign. But on the plus side or the good news is that she was just at the right size that they could go in surgically, push the bone together, put a pin in it to hold it in place so that it would heal correctly and then send her on home. And that's what we did. And just as a side note, um, what I thought was really funny is, so this particular vet is my exotic vet. So I see them for all my reptiles, but I also been there quite a lot in the past couple of years for my chickens. And, um, you know, I know because we've had exotics for so long that all of their care is more expensive than with mammals. But let's be honest, if I had, God forbid, a dog with a broken jawbone, I would be paying in the thousands for a surgery because, you know, there's so much involved in it and there's the size to consider and all this kind of stuff. But I'm saying this because when they called me to discuss pricing, her voice, the the text voice was so obviously prepared for me to, I don't know, lose my cool or beg them to lower the price. But actually, I thought the price was very reasonable for what they were doing. So I am actually going to share the price. And I'm as a British person, it's very hard for me to talk about money because I was raised sort of middle class and in the middle class it's just not done darling we don't discuss finances but I want to talk about it because let's be honest I mean I breed these animals and I want people who are interested in taking them in interested in welcoming them as a pet that their care can be expensive the beauty of reptiles is that you don't really need regular checkups with them you don't need things like heart guard and flea treatment and dental cleanings and all this kind of stuff so over the course of their lifespan they're actually relatively inexpensive but if something goes wrong you're going to be paying a fair amount so to be upfront, I'm going to let you guys know that her surgery including x-rays and including she stayed overnight for some aftercare uh, painkillers the medication that I took home all of that came to just over $800 total And they set things up there that when you leave the animal before a surgery, you put down a deposit of 300 and then you pay whatever is remaining on the bill when you pick up your animal. And I was expecting them to tell me well over a grand. So I was thinking they were going to get back to me with like a 1500, maybe even close to 2000 bill. So I was really pleased with this. And ironically, our stimulus check had just gone into the account. So I was like, okay, well, it's going right back out again to look after Europa. So that said, the surgery went well. Uh, They got the pin in. 
the alternative was that if the bone wasn't secure enough or if there wasn't enough of the bone left to pin it we would have had to do something like basically jaw um jaw her wire shut wire her jaw shut put in a feeding tube to her throat and the healing would take a lot longer and it would also dramatically increase her stress which in reptiles can lower their immune system very quickly and actually end up being fatal so we really didn't want to do that so the good news was that the pin went in I was able to pick her up the following day. She's been on a liquid diet. She's been getting pain meds and things have actually been going pretty well with her. She's strong. She has eaten a little bit. She's gone to do her business. She is basking, you know, and drinking and all that kind of good stuff. I do think that her jaw is going to end up deformed, not in a way that is going to prevent her from eating and drinking, thankfully, but it's kind of bowed underneath. And it's possible that's going to clear up during, you know, a long recovery period. But as things look right now, I'm sort of, you know, just getting myself used to the idea that she might always have a small deformity there. But as long as it doesn't interrupt with her function, then that's totally fine. Um, the frustrating thing about all of this is that we have no idea what happened. I think I mentioned in the last episode that, um, usually, you know, if you come across a broken jaw, which sadly isn't completely uncommon in, uh, reptiles, usually it's due to fighting between one or more animals or they fell from a great height and landed badly or something landed on them. Well, there's no signs that any of that happened. Nothing's fallen in the enclosure. There's no signs that she fell in the enclosure. And there were zero signs of fighting. You know, there was no scratches, no bite marks on either her or the mate that she lives with, which is a male. And I discussed it with my vet and he agreed. He's like, there's no signs that she's been fighting. There's no other damage on her at all. And then we discussed the other possibility, which would be a calcium deficiency deficiency which could lead to something like metabolic bone disease now this is relatively common in reptiles usually because people aren't supplementing their diet or they're not providing uv light which is necessary for some species to synthesize their food now i do provide calcium i do provide uv lights but she is a breeding animal it's possible that maybe she ended up with a calcium deficiency because of all the babies she produced last year Well, that wasn't the cause either. The x-rays showed very healthy bones. Um, There was no signs of thinning or degradation. There was nothing that would make us suspect there was any underlying condition with her bone structure at all. So my best guess is that she bit something solid thinking it was food and she bit it with such force that she broke her own jaw. And I know that seems unlikely, but I've seen reptiles do stupider things. And really, that is our our best guess. There's just no other clue, which is frustrating because obviously it means that I can't prevent this from happening again. I can't find the cause, fix it. But hopefully it means that this was just a one-off that's never going to happen again and we'll be okay. Now, I'm not sure if I was clear last episode but she has been removed from her boyfriend her her mate now there is a thin chance that she's already pregnant and I'm a little worried she is because she's looking a little chonky despite not eating that much if she is pregnant we'll be giving her extra care to try and get her through everything because really uh that would be a strain on top of the the broken jaw 
if she isn't pregnant, then obviously I have no intentions of breeding her. She's going to be off for the season. She possibly might be off for next year as well, depending on how things go with this jaw. So this would mean that I wouldn't produce babies this year. My other females are resting. Um, I have no intentions of breeding them. And I'm actually kind of okay with that. Uh, taking a break from the business uh, wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. My husband has some baby snakes that he needs to sell so I can help him with that. We're possibly producing another litter of baby snakes. So we will be busy, just potentially not with the the rep, with my reptiles. Um, and that's really it on her. So she's doing really well. I'm really pleased with how the healing is going. She has a checkup tomorrow where they said potentially they could remove the pin, but looking at it, I don't think that's going to happen. I think she's going to need another two weeks at least. In chicken news, um, I discovered that my little beakless hen, Squeak, who lives with Agatha in the special needs coop, is infested with poultry lice. And I was kicking myself when I found it because I've been so obsessively checking Agatha that I kind of forgot that Squeak can also suffer infestation because she doesn't have a full beak so she can't groom herself so I got out the diatomaceous earth I gave her a really really thorough dusting uh obviously I couldn't bathe her or spray her with anything because it's so cold outside and I don't want her to be damp in that kind of environment so we just did a really big dust and lice tend to congregate around the vent area on chickens because it's warm and it's harder for the chickens to reach And while I was back there on her vent, I noticed that she had quite messy feathers as if she was suffering from diarrhea or some kind of discharge. Now, I haven't seen any signs of diarrhea in that coop. So my concern was that it was a kind of discharge. And I'm a little worried that she has vent gleep, which is a fungal infection. Although her vent itself does look quite healthy, discharge from vent gleep is very common and it often presents early on with this sort of messy feather look around their tushy. So basically what I did is I um, ended up, because I couldn't wash those feathers, like I said, I'd have to bring her in and then trying to acclimate her back to the cold would be too difficult so I trimmed the feathers which both got rid of the build-up and would prevent further build-up from uh, occurring and one of the big things with Ventgley is because it's a fungal infection um, you can give probiotics and make sure their water is clean because often dirty water can be a cause now I don't think the water's a cause because Agatha has no signs of it but I did do a big water change I added a big dose of probiotics and then I started offering Greek yogurt with their oats for a couple of days uh, which they love it's one of their favorite treats and now going forward I'll be doing a yogurt treat for the special needs girls every other day if there's no improvement soon, I'll take her to the exotic vet. Um, actually, my chicken vet was the one who performed the surgery on my skink because my main reptile guy, he was assisting, but he wasn't the one who took over the case. Um, so if I take my chicken in, I'm pretty sure at this point that I am funding my uh, avian vet's child to go through college. But <laughs> that's okay because he, they provide really really great care there and um and I know that if they did like a fecal or something we could probably figure out what's going on with this girl so watch this space I will update as soon as I know anything otherwise the hens and the rooster in the big coop are doing really really well I'm probably getting one to two eggs a day which isn't great but I'll take it 
Um, other news is Luna had her birthday. She is six years old, but she still looks like a little puppy to me. I am so grateful that we have this sweet little whippet in our life. She is such a brat sometimes and she can be very naughty, but we love her to pieces and she gives the best snuggles and um, I just love her very much. I'm very thrilled that we are celebrating her sixth birthday. As for Hive updates, we actually had a mild afternoon last week with no wind, so I was able to run out and I was able to check on all the hives. They're all still hanging in there, although um, a lot of them are right at the top now by the feeder, so they've probably exhausted their own food stores and now they're relying on what I put in the feeder to get through. So I put out additional sugar, I put out winter patties and I moved some of it closer to the cluster. So if you have like a big feeder on top and all of the sugar ends up say on one end, but the cluster is on the opposite end, they won't move to access that sugar. Um, In a way they can't because if they break up the cluster, they lose the heat and they'll get chilled. So I moved a lot of the sugar to where the cluster was visible. And I had kind of a a fun surprise was that uh, my Sask mother hive, my Saskatraz mother hive is not only still alive, but they were actually alert enough to be kind of spicy. So I wore my veil and I'm glad I did because they flew up and pinged me a few times or sort of told me off for interrupting them. Uh, So that was kind of incredible because they went in so weak, but they really seemed to be hanging in there, which is wonderful. I also had suspicions that one of my nucleus colonies had died, but both were still going. So I put a lot more sugar in for them and just told them, you know, hang in there, girls. Like, hopefully spring isn't too far away. The one bit of kind of sad news is that my southern US colony, Queen Marka, looked really weak when I peeked in on them. Um, I actually thought they were dead until I saw that the cluster was moving just kind of sluggishly. And I'm not entirely sure what's going on there because the cluster is a good size still, but they do seem very weak. So I piled up food for them. I moved the hive wrap so it's higher up and providing hopefully better coverage around where they're actually clustering. And I just kind of told them, you know, do your best. Please hang in there because Marka is my only surviving queen from the two nucleus colonies I bought that got me started on this journey. So it would be very, very sad if I lost her. My Ohio genetics hive, Queen Caredwin, they're still low in in their hive. They are, you know, utilizing their honey really well. Um, In fact, they're so low in the hive that when I opened the top of the feeder and I didn't see them, I completely freaked out. I thought they were dead. I was actually listening to some music at the time. So obviously I turned that off, hunkered down and realized, no, they're in there. They're actually quite loud. They're just low in the hive. Um, But I still added some extra sugar just so that when they do make their way to the top, they have food available. And then I kind of hung out by the front entrance for a while and watched the girls coming and going, doing their cleansing flights. And they looked strong. You know, they they were pulling dead bodies out, which is always a good sign that they're strong enough to do that. So I just really hope this continues and that that colony survives because that is definitely the colony that I want to make nukes from again because she's doing so well and obviously these kind of local genetics are uh, they're used to the area they've they've adapted for this area and, and they're just going strong so I hope it continues since the winter solstice has passed and we're now in January 
this is the time of year when I suddenly think, okay, well, winter's over, right? And now we're going to have spring. Well, no, there's still, you know, a good, what, maybe two months or 50% of winter left, uh, which I hate remembering because I think this is when it gets tricky. It's harder on the girls. If they start, you know, brood rearing, then they have to work harder. And then it's harder on me because I miss them and I struggle with the long winters due to my seasonal affective disorder. Um, Just as a reminder before we move on that I've changed the structure of my episodes a little bit so that personal updates will now be at the end so you don't have to fast forward if you want to skip them and I don't have a lot to report uh, this episode but if you wanted to hear a little bit about you know I have celiac disease and I got glutened you can find out what that means at the end of this episode and also just some things that I've been doing for self-care that I found really helpful in kind of getting through this grey and cold winter so if you're interested just stay tuned and that's all going to be at the very end of this episode. Okay let's move on to the meat and veg of today's episodes which is chapter three of Honeybee Democracy and this chapter is called Dream Home for Honeybees. And like the other chapters, it opens with a quote. If I can with confidence say that still for another day or even after year, I will be there for you, my dear. It will be because though small as measured against the all, I have been so instinctively thorough about my crevice and my burrow. That's by Robert Frost, a drumlin woodchuck, originally published in 1936. When honeybees search for a new nest site, no fewer than six distinct properties are assessed, and these include cavity volume, entrance height, entrance size, and the presence of comb from a previous colony. This knowledge about how bees so carefully choose their homes has only been known for the past 30 years or so. Despite humanity's long-standing relationship with the honeybee, it has primarily been forged through our keeping of them in artificial nests in areas of our choosing, for our convenience. Little thought has really been given over the years to their wild nest choices. Evidence of beekeeping can be traced back as far as 2400 BC, thanks to a stone base relief found in Egypt that depicts people removing honeycomb from stacks of cylindrical clay hives. So for approximately 4,400 years, humans have chosen the living situation of their honeybee colonies, prioritising ease of access and large hives that will lead to a more bountiful honey harvest and give Uh, decrease the chances of swarming which as a beekeeper we really don't like. This next section is nests of wild colonies. When Thomas Seeley began his PhD thesis project on the democratic house hunting process of honeybees in 1975 he realised that a good starting point was to attempt to identify what attributes make a nest desirable to the honeybees and When he had this thought, he quickly realised that this could potentially be difficult to assess as there could be multiple aspects that appeal to bees and discovering them all and narrowing them down would definitely be a challenge. So to start with, he decided to examine colonies of honeybees in the wild. He would find trees used as a nest site, cut the trees down and carefully examine the nest within. He reasoned that these natural sites were chosen by the bees without human interference and therefore must have attributes appealing to them and critical to their decision-making process. 
1955, Martin Lindauer had reported experiments conducted in Munich where he would present a swarm with a pair of nest boxes that differed in some key property as a means to determine preference. Although Lindauer was only able to conduct a few tests, he was still able to identify some attributes of nest preference, such as protection from the wind, cavity size, presence of ants and sun exposure. Lindauer suggested that to solve the mystery of nest selection, to quote him, it would be best to ask the bees themselves about this matter. Seeley felt that a good way to do just this was to closely examine wild colony nest sites. Returning to the Dice Laboratory for Honeybee Studies at Cornell, the director of the lab, Roger A. Morse, assisted Seeley by providing essential tools for this project, such as a chainsaw and a truck. Morse also introduced Seeley to Herb Nelson, a member of the entomology department's technical staff who had previously worked as a logger in Maine. He would teach Seeley how to cut down the bee trees safely and securely. Back in his high school days, Seeley had discovered several bee trees in the woods by his family's home, and so he started with these. He also placed an ad in the local newspaper offering $15 or 15 pounds of honey for access to any tree housing a live colony of honeybees. And within a week, he had 18 additional trees. As an interesting side note, only two people took the money and the rest of them all wanted the honey. Sadly, the bees of each colony would need to be killed before the nest could be studied in detail. To do this, Seeley would go to the bee tree before sunrise when all the bees would still be home and he would climb up a ladder and spoon cyanide powder into the nest entrance before plugging it shut with a rag. The cyanide powder would react to the moist environment of the nest cavity producing cyanide gas which would then kill all the bees in the tree but not Seeley standing outside. Except that one time Seeley accidentally dropped the can of cyanide powder and had to hold his breath, climb down, put the lid back on the canister and then run away from the spreading cloud of cyanide gas as quickly as he could. Yikes. In hindsight, if he repeats this experiment, I sure hope that he will have another person with him in case anything goes wrong. Now, a silver lining to this sadly unavoidable colony death is that it allowed Seeley to catalogue the population in detail by counting each and every bee. And so this would give him a good idea of how many workers there were and how many drone. And depending on the time of year that he harvested these colonies, that would also give him a little bit more information about this population. Once all the bees in the nest had perished, Seeley and Herb would return to the tree during the day and cut it down. They would then cut out the section containing the nest, haul it up onto the truck and drive it to the dice lab to be dissected. The section of tree containing nests varied in size, with some being as long as six foot and as thick around as three foot, which is rather substantial. Now, to measure the volume of the cavity, Seeley would first remove all the comb and then fill it with sand, and he could convert the weight of the sand that filled it into a volume. Now, Seeley does specifically say that he felt saddened to kill all these colonies for the study, but he was also excited to be the first human to describe the natural home of the honeybees in such great detail, to which I put a note that basically says, science! Because sadly, science has, 
I guess, a dark side. Sometimes you do things that seem cruel, such as having to euthanize animals or kill them to study them more in depth. But the idea is that you only do so with a purpose, that you are acquiring some kind of knowledge that hasn't been gleaned before and that has larger application to the subject as a whole. Throughout the summer of 1975, Seeley and Herb collected and dissected 21 bee tree nests. Seeley also located 18 trees that they did not cut down, but which he did study for information on entrance location only, because obviously that was all that he could really assess without getting into the nest cavity. Now, the first thing Seeley noticed is that bees occupied all kinds of trees, including oaks, walnuts, elms, pines, hickories, ashes and maples, so there was no preference indicated here. Unsurprisingly, the shape of cavities were predominantly tall and cylindrical, aka tree-shaped, but Seeley was surprised by the size of the cavities. They were much smaller than the standard hives used by beekeepers, and which I am assuming he assumed would be comparable to nest cavities. The average nest cavity was 20 centimetres or 8 inches in diameter and 150 centimetres or 60 inches tall with a volume of 45 litres or 41 quarts, which is about a quarter to half the size of a standard beekeeper's hive. Now, just as a quick side note, Seeley actually doesn't state what he means by a standard hive in the book, but I'm going to assume that he's referring to a 10-frame Langstroth as A, they are the most common, and B, in his previous publications, this is the uh, hive that he has used for experiments or that he has specifically mentioned as being like the control hive of managed colonies. Now, some colonies occupied cavities of just 20 to 30 litres, but none were smaller than 12 litres. The bees would make full use of the space inside the tree with combs spanning from wall to wall and with small passages built where the comb attached to the wall, which was allowing free movement of the bees and which we've called before bee space, the area that bees allow themselves so that they can move freely through a colony. The nests were organised in a way that is familiar to beekeepers with the brood in the lower region and the honey stored in the upper regions. Those nests that Seeley harvested in August showed good progress towards their honey storage for winter. On average, they contained 14 kilograms or 30 pounds of honey, although sadly this was all inedible now because it had been poisoned by cyanide. The entrance openings showed consistencies that indicated potential preference. Most consisted of a single knot hole or crack with a total area of 10 to 30 square centimetres or 2 to 5 square inches. Entrances were typically located near the floor of the cavity on the south side of the tree and also close to the ground. Now, entrances being so close to the ground confuse Seeley as these lower entrances increase the chance of predation by animals such as bears. And bears have long been a problem for honeybees. In medieval times, in the forests of northern Europe, bears were such a pest that forest beekeepers set horrible traps for them consisting of platforms that would collapse under the weight of the bear, dropping them into a pit filled with deadly metal spikes. 
So Seely was surprised that these entrances were low because he would have assumed that over time, bees would have learned to choose higher entrances to avoid this predation by bears. Well, later on in his studies, Seely realised that he had fallen foul of unintentional sample bias. Basically, as these trees with the nests in them were found by people, this meant that those nests that were closer to the ground were the ones being found, because people are more likely to notice bee activity that's within their line of sight. And as a result, this meant that the trees sampled in this study all had lower entrances. After Seeley became a more experienced bee hunter, he discovered that honeybees do in fact prefer nest entrances that are high above the ground. In fact, later observations allowed him to ascertain that the average height of the entrance is 6.5 metres, which is 21 feet above the ground. And that made a lot more sense to him. Moving on, this next section is called Location, Location, Location. So this dissection of the nest led to some commonalities found, such as volume, entrance area, entrance height, etc. Seeley needed to test whether these indicated scout bee preference or merely a consequence of the tree cavities that happened to be available. And so Seeley designed his test based on the bait hives used by beekeepers in East and South Africa, where they would use hollowed logs with only one entrance opening as a means of attracting swarms. Now, at the time, Seeley had not seen beekeepers do this in North America, although now it's quite common to set swarm traps or bait hives. And so he realised that these bait hives could help him ascertain bee nest site preferences. Seeley would put out bait hives in groups of two to three, with all boxes in a group being identical except for one property, such as volume, height, etc., As scout bees chose from among the group, he hoped that this would indicate their preference. Now, before launching into the full study, he started with a smaller pilot study to make sure that his premise, attracting of scout bees to these groups of nest boxes, would actually work. So in the summer of 1975, he built six nest boxes using scrap wood from the Dice Laboratory. Each box was 35 centimetres or 14 inches wide, tall and deep with a 4.5 centimetre or 1.75 inch diameter entrance hole on the front side. He also placed wire over this entrance hole to keep birds out but to let the bees in. Seeley took these boxes to Ellis Hollow, an area not far from where his family lives, and then he nailed them onto trees about five metres or 15 feet above the ground. By late June, one of these boxes had been occupied by honeybees, and within a few weeks, two more boxes had been discovered by bees, and this meant the pilot study was a success. So in the summers of 1976 and 1977, Seeley set up more than 200 nest boxes in groups of two to three across Tompkins County. And over half of these groups of boxes attracted honeybees. The boxes in each group were spaced about 10 metres or 33 feet apart on similarly sized trees or power line poles, all perfectly matched in visibility, wind exposure, etc., So he's basically trying to make sure that the place that they have been situated is as comparable or as as similar as possible. 
Each group was designed to test one nest site preference. So each group offered a box that contained properties that matched a typical nest site in nature, average volume, average entrance area, etc. And then one to two boxes that were identical except for one atypical property. So to take an example, if he was to test for entrance size preference, if there was any, uh, he would have pairs of cubicle nest boxes that were identi identical, except one had a typical entrance area of 12.5 square centimetres or 2.5 square inches, and one had a larger entrance area of 12.5 square centimetres Oh dear, I made a mistake there. <laughs> Sorry, a larger entrance area of 15 square inches and whatever that is in square centimeters. I'm so sorry, I put, I put in the wrong uh, statement there. Anyway, uh, to test the cavity size, he'd put three identical boxes out, one with a typical cavity volume of 40 liters and then two that had volumes at the lower and the upper cavity ranges. So one was 10 liters and one was 100 liters. Ultimately, he put out a total number of 252 nest boxes using enough wood to have made a small house. So that's quite the experiment. Seeley would eventually capture 124 swarms in the summers of 1976 and 1977. And swarms demonstrated preferences in the following variables. Entrance size, entrance direction, entrance height above the ground, entrance height above the cavity floor, cavity volume, and the presence of combs. Thus, bees had revealed that they preferred a nest entrance that's rather small, faces south, is high off the ground, and opens into the bottom of the cavity. And this makes sense if we consider that a small entrance is more easily defendable, a high entrance is less likely to be discovered by predators like bears, Having the entrance at the bottom of the cavity likely helps to minimise heat loss because heat will rise up. And a south-facing entrance provides a warm porch for foragers because it gets more sunlight. Now, a south-facing orientation is also particularly important in winter months when bees go on their cleansing flights. A Canadian researcher in Alberta studied colonies living in south and north facing hives and he found that the south facing hives were less likely to be blocked by snow and ice and they were also more populous in the spring. Seeley's study also showed that bees avoid cavities smaller than 10 litres and greater than 100 litres and that they preferred around 40 litres. Cavities with existing comb from a previous colony were much preferred, and this makes a lot of sense if we consider that an, what an energy saving this would offer. So a typical nest in a bee tree contains about 100,000 cells, which is equal to eight or so combs, with a total surface area of 2.5 square centimetres square meters sorry or three square yards and building this much comb requires 1200 grams or 2.5 pounds of beeswax now the weight to weight efficiency of beeswax synthesis from sugar is at most about 0.20 or to put it another way it takes five pounds of sugar to make one pound of beeswax knowing this it therefore costs six kilograms of sugar or 7.5 kilograms or 16 pounds of honey to make this amount of comb, that approximately eight combs. 
and 16 pounds of honey is roughly a third of the needed stores to survive the winter. So being able to store this amount of honey early on therefore will offer a huge boon to the swarm and it will greatly increase their winter survival chances. Now remember, Seeley mentioned previously that he had discovered that 76% of newly established colonies will die during their first winter in his study area of Ithaca, New York. And nearly all of these colonies that died did so because they ran out of food and they starved to death. This study of nest site preferences also allowed Seeley to learn what properties are of little to no concern to honeybees. And these include entrance shape, cavity shape, cavity draftiness, and cavity dryness. The lack of preference for these properties does make sense if we consider that bees can modify a cavity to be less drafty by corking the holes and cracks using propolis, and they can also decrease wetness by removing wet material and then applying a layer of propolis to waterproof the cavity. That's something that was discussed in relative detail in The Lives of Bees. In contrast, bees cannot modify the volume, height or direction of a cavity. Now, Celia tested draftiness and wetness by offering bait hives with holes that were drilled on all sides or bait hives that had wet sawdust on the bottom. And the bees merely corked, closed the holes and then removed all the sawdust. To quote Celia here, I was greatly impressed by the bees' tidiness. And to add to that, I personally think what you can learn from this is bees are not afraid of hard work. They do not balk at a fixer-upper, unlike me, who prefers move-in ready housing. Okay, this next section is called freebies, and that's freebies all one word, as in things for freeze, not free, as in I paid nothing for these bees, beautiful golden insects. So this section starts with Seeley pointing out how sometimes curiosity-driven research leads to unexpected practical applications. For example, in the late 1970s, Seeley and his wife Robin conducted a 10-month study of the three Asian honeybee species that were living in Thailand, which resulted in a 21-page report and which was conducted purely due to their curiosity about these bees and their environment. A few years later, this knowledge helped with international relations. So how how did it do that? Well, it's a slightly convoluted story, but basically there was concern by US forces that the Soviet Union was waging chemical warfare in two countries bordering Thailand, Laos and Kampuchea, which would be a violation of the 1925 Geneva Protocol and the 1972 Biological Weapons Convention, and that would mean that the US would probably need to send in troops. And the evidence of this biological warfare or chemical warfare? Something called yellow rain, small yellow spots or droplets that were found on vegetation at the alleged attack sites, which supposedly, when tested, contained fungal toxins. Now, Seeley came across images of this yellow rain, and he realised that it appeared completely indistinguishable to honeybee faeces in size, shape and colour. When this yellow rain was examined, it was found to contain bee hair and pollen grains, which is what you'd find in bee poop. So Seeley helped a professor of molecular genetics at Harvard and an expert in chemical and biological weapons prove that this yellow rain was in fact bee poo. 
As a result, US officials stopped accusing the Soviets of chemical warfare in 1984. And that was it. That was the end of this potential uh, military issue. And there's really no way to ever foresee that Seeley's research on the Asian honeybee could lead to preventing an international incident. A slightly less dramatic example is Seeley's study of nest site preferences that led to him and Roger Morse translating their findings into guidelines for bait hives that could be used by anyone looking to capture honeybee swarms. They published these guidelines in a beekeeping magazine and the response from beekeepers was very enthusiastic. Before this, beekeepers relied on being notified of swarms when they're resting out in the open and now these bait hives made the swarms come to us. Since this first publication, sleeker designs have been invented for the bait hives, as well as chemical laws that mimic the attraction pheromones that scout bees release to make to mark a site as desirable. Justin Schmidt at the USDA Bee Research Center in Tucson, Arizona, conducted experiments that showed that scout laws, these uh, chemical laws, in a bait hive increase the chances of catching a swarm by fivefold. Bait hives are so popular now that they are even commercially produced. A lot of beekeeping companies will sell these and you can see them in their catalogues. Seeley closes this section of the chapter, as you can see it's a relatively short one, by saying that even now he puts up half a dozen bait hives every summer because he likes free bees and he can always use a few more colonies. And as a side note, I really want to make some bait hives and get them up for the spring um, and the rest of the year because it's something I've always said I'm going to do and it's never quite worked out so fingers crossed I can do that. This next section is called property assessments. In August 1974, the summer before Seeley would start his graduate studies at Harvard, he was watching scout bees examining a potential nest site and he started to worry that his plan to study the democratic process of nest site selection might prove too large in scope for his abilities. Uh, not one to just sit around worrying, he decided to do something. And so he learned how to make an artificial swarm by shaking a colony into a cage, feeding them heavily with sugar syrup to mimic the honey-stuffed worker bees that would leave with the swarm. And then he took this artificial swarm to his parents' house in Ellis Hollow, where he then hung a nest box about 150 metres or 500 feet away from the cage swarm. Scout bees quickly started investigating the area and then advertising several sites until one location dominated, Seeley's nest box. Seeley then marked some of the scout bees and followed their activity closely. And he found that they would dance enthusiastically, uh, beg for a drop of nectar from their sisters or take a little nap, and then they would fly off again. When returning from their scouting trips, over time he noticed that they were just as likely to go back out again as they were to settle in with the rest of the swarm and rest. At the nest box, the marked scout bees would run in and out, then they'd crawl around the entrance before going back in, or they would fly slowly around the box as if visually inspecting it. After watching all of this, Seeley's confidence in his area of study for his PhD thesis now grew as he realised that he could indeed explore how scout bees inspect a nest site and actually learn quite a lot while doing so with minimal equipment. In June 1975, 
1975, he began his study on the inspection behavior of scalp bees in earnest. And to do this, he chose a location devoid of natural nesting sites for honeybees. And that location was Appledore Island, a rocky, windblown island, 900 metres or about half a mile long and about 10 kilometres or six miles out in the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of southern Maine. Appledore has no resident honeybees and no large trees for them to nest in. So Seeley's thought here was that any honeybees that he brought to the island would have to focus their nest site scouting on any boxes that Seeley provided, thus allowing him to observe their behaviour in controlled conditions, which is very important to any scientific experiment. Seeley realised that he needed to be able to observe the bees inside the nest box as well as outside. And so he built a lightproof hut with a cube-shaped nest box mounted on one wall. The, next, the nest box was placed outside a window that was covered with a red filter so Seeley could look inside without disturbing the bees because bees cannot see red light. On the inner surfaces of the box, Seeley drew a grid system that allowed him to accurately map a scout bee's movements inside. After setting up this research hut, Seeley positioned a small swarm of some 2,000 bees at the very centre of the island. The bees had been marked with paint dots using a colour code that made them individually identifiable, and then Seeley just had to wait. So he's back at the research hut and waiting for the bees and over time no bees arrived. So Seeley returned to the swarm and he found scout bees enthusiastically dancing for a a site that was away from his nest box. What could they have possibly found? Plotting their direction he realised they were checking out one of two lobster fishermen's cottages on the south shore of the island. Now, Seeley had been specifically told to stay away from these residences as the men who lived there valued their privacy. Unsure of how to proceed, Seeley sought advice from the island's laboratory director, who took him to the cottage in question to introduce him to the owner, one Rodney Sullivan. Rodney saw the two men approaching and waved them in, telling them that he had a sudden emergency. Hundreds of bees were going into the pipe of his wood stove. Seeley immediately offered to help, but did not mention exactly why this event was suddenly happening. What they ended up doing was they smoked out the bees by lighting the stove, and then once all the bees had left the pipe, Seeley climbed up and placed a screen over the stove pipe to prevent any returning bees from entering. With this site now inaccessible to them, the scout bees started to check out Seeley's nest box at the research hut. So now the study was underway and Seeley noted that a scout bee needs 13 to 56 minutes with an average of 37 to fully inspect a prospective site. The inspection involves 10 to 30 journeys inside the cavity, each taking less than a minute, alternated with brief examinations of the exterior. Seeley calls the first inspection when the bee pops in and out of the cavity the discovery inspection. If the site is deemed desirable, the scout bee will waggle dance back at the swarm cluster and make repeated visits at approximately 30 minute intervals. These subsequent visits usually last just 10 to 20 minutes with an average of 13 and don't involve as much in and out activity. 
During her discovery inspection, the scout spends about 75% of her time rapidly walking across the inner surfaces of the cavity. This quick pacing is interspersed with short pauses to rest, groom and release attraction pheromones as well as short and hopping flights. These little flights last less than a minute and they include the walls, floor and ceiling. So they don't just fly from wall to wall or floor to ceiling. They could start on the floor and fly to one of the walls and from there they could fly up to the ceiling and they just kind of hop around in these short erratic little flights. Early in the discovery inspection, scout bees walk primarily near the entrance, going deeper into the cavity later on. When this inspection has finished, the scout has walked 60 metres or 200 feet, sometimes even more, and covered all the inner surfaces of the cavity. Seeley spent a total of four weeks on Apador Island in 1975 to gather this data, and although he had not solved the mystery of how scout bees evaluate potential nest sites, he did feel that he had made progress towards a better understanding of the process. Returning to the island in July 1976, Seeley focused on attempting to discover how scout bees measure the size of the nest cavity, as cavity volume is perhaps the most critical aspect of a colony's long-term survival. A cavity with 10 litres or less does not provide sufficient space to store the honey needed for winter, and so bees avoid these spaces which made Seeley surmise that bees must have some mechanism to measure space in order to know what to avoid. He identified two potential methods of measurement, the extensive walking around on inner surfaces that he had previously observed and a simple visual inspection of the space by standing within the cavity and just sort of looking around. Seeley tested both of these ideas by setting up nest boxes with various amounts of interior light and traversable surface area by creating inner surfaces that bees could not walk on due to a lack of traction. The end result was that he learned that bees need interior light greater than 0.5 lux, which is kind of comparable to the light of a full moon to give you an idea, or fully traversable inner surfaces. To test which of these methods, visual inspection or walking, was used more by the bees, Seeley used a light meter on previously collected nest cavities to find out how much natural light was actually getting into these cavities. And he found that the illumination inside these nests was less than 0.5 lux, except for near the entrance, meaning that scout bees could not be relying on a visual inspection because the light was too low in these natural cavities for them to be able to see effectively. And so this means that the walking on the inner surfaces that had been observed is the primary method of measurement. To dig into this deeper, Seeley attempted to alter a scout bee's perception of cavity volume by manipulating the amount of walking she did. To do this, he built a little bee treadmill. To quote him, this was a cylindrical nest box mounted vertically on a turntable that enabled me to rotate the box smoothly while a scout bee was inside. By tracking the bee's movements inside, Seeley was able to modify how far she walked by turning either in the same direction she faced, which made her walking time seem shorter, or in the opposite direction, making her walking time longer. 
The only light entering the nest box came from the entrance, which likely acted as a reference point for the bee and was as close to mimicking wild environments as Seeley could provide. The volume of the box that he used for this experiment was about 14 litres, not too small, aka not less than 10 litres, but also not especially large. And he chose this size because he hoped that a scout bee would therefore find it more or less desirable depending on whether she had walked more or less than its true volume indicated. So how to assess whether a scout bee found the cavity desirable? By counting how many other bees she recruited to inspect the space. In the four trials that Seeley did of this experiment, he found that there were seven to nine recruits that arrived within 90 minutes when the initial scout bee walked a lot, while there was just zero or one recruit that would arrive in 90 minutes if she walked just a little. And this seems to support the idea that the bees taking long walks therefore found the box suitably large. To quote Seeley, It seems clear, therefore, that a scout's estimate of the volume of the cavity is proportional to the amount of walking she must do to circumnavigate it. Every step is a measurement. Now, Nigel R. Franks and Anna Dornhouse, biologists at the University of Bristol, England, which is my alma mater, and the University of Arizona, have proposed that a physics principle might apply here. Physicists have long known that for any open space, the mean free path length, the MFPL, of waterfall lines drawn in all directions across the space is equal to four times the volume of the space divided by its internal surface area. Now, bear with me. There's a little bit of math here, but I don't expect you to do it. Just follow along. Thus, volume is proportional to mean free path length multiplied by internal surface area. Knowing this... Franks and Dornhouse suggested that if the walking of bees provides the internal surface area, perhaps the short hopping flights observed are a way for the bee to see how far they can fly before hitting the wall, which potentially means they are estimating the mean free path length. Franks and Dornhouse proposed an experiment to test this theory, which would involve hanging a rigid curtain across much of the interior of a nest box and coating the curtain with a substance that the bees cannot walk on. The curtain would drastically shorten the mean free path length of flights, but it would not change the volume of the walkable surface area. If the bees behave as if the space has decreased in size, this would indicate that the mean free path length flights do function as a system of measurement for the scout bees. Now, at the time of publication, Seeley states that he hopes this test will be performed soon. And being curious, I looked up both scientists' publication lists and I couldn't find a paper on the subject, although both have a number of publications on honeybee scouts, including some with Seeley as a co-author. So if you're interested in looking them up, you can put their names into Google and you will get a list of all their publications to date. Now, it's possible that this study never came to be due to time issues or funding constraints, but it's equally possible that it just was never picked up for publication. Academic publishing is often complicated and competitive, and it can be hard to find the right publisher for a niche or smaller scale research paper. With all that said, that's it for this chapter.
Thank you so much for listening and I hope you're enjoying this book review. Please join me in two weeks for chapter four of Honeybee Democracy. And in the meantime, you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, all the social medias, or you can email me directly at homesteadhensandhoney, all one word, at gmail.com. Okay, so this is the part of the uh, episode where I just share some personal updates. So anyone who didn't want to hear them can turn off now (laughs) and be on your way. Uh, So real quick, I mentioned at the beginning, I talked about getting glutened. What on earth does that mean? Well, um, I know I've mentioned it on and off. I have celiac disease and celiac disease is an autoimmune disorder that basically causes my immune system to go nuts if I eat anything with gluten in it. And uh, gluten is a protein that's found in wheat, barley, rye, and some oats. And what happens is if I consume that, it triggers an immune response, but instead of attacking the gluten protein, it just attacks my whole digestive system. So if you are celiac and you eat gluten, um, you will suffer a wide range of symptoms. Uh, You know, digestive distress is, is a big part of one. The longer you go eating gluten, um, you'll suffer things like malnutrition. You'll develop lactose intolerance because all the villi in your gut fall over and they stop producing lactase. So you can't digest milk anymore. Uh, Interestingly, it also comes with weirder symptoms like a rash, like an itchy skin rash. Uh, People have psychological symptoms. Depression, anxiety is very, very common for people who haven't been diagnosed yet and are still eating gluten. And... um, you can become so malnourished uh, because your poor damaged gut can't absorb nutrients anymore that you can end up in hospital and it can be very, very, um, very bad. Now, uh, celiac disease usually is either diagnosed from infancy, which isn't as common, or what's a lot more common is people seem to be diagnosed in their 20s. Now, I haven't read all the literature, but since my diagnosis many moons ago, um, it's now been learned that it, there's a genetic component and the gene can be activated by exposure to a bacteria, a kind of stomach virus. So a lot of people have exactly what happened to me. I was 19 years old. I had one of the worst stomach flus of my life. And after that, I started having issues um, that I eventually found out was because of celiac disease. And also like many people who uh, developed symptoms or became symptomatic as an adult, looking at my childhood, you can see signs that something wasn't quite right. I always bruised easily. I was often feeling sick. I had trouble eating in the morning. I had a weird relationship with food. I suffered sort of with more colds and stuff than a lot of children, you know, just kind of signs in hindsight that my immune system wasn't doing that great. But anyway, I mentioned all of this because... Um, I, you know, the good thing about celiac is that the way to deal with it is just to cut out all gluten and it's tricky. Uh, they estimate that for the first two years you go gluten-free, you're actually not gluten-free because you're still accidentally ingesting things. Uh, and in part, this is because to be truly gluten-free, you have to learn about uh, hidden ingredients. So for instance, anything on a label that says like natural flavorings, that could contain gluten. And depending on what country you live in, the manufacturer may or may not need to say that it contains gluten. So the US isn't great about allergies. They're much better than they used to be, but they still have a long way to go. Whereas somewhere like England is very good about, um, 
saying if something has gluten in it but there are just still ways you can you know trip up you might think for instance well soy sauce there's no way that has gluten in it and you don't look well traditional soy sauce often has wheat in it and wheat contains gluten so there's all these kind of things that can make you sick another issue if you are gluten-free is cross-contamination And so what this basically is, is that it's a food product that is gluten-free, but it's been exposed at some point to something containing gluten. So maybe someone made gluten-free muffins, but it was made in a pan that had previously had gluten-y muffins in it and they hadn't cleaned it between uses. Or they stored that gluten-free baked good touching regular baked goods or they cut it on a plate that previously had bread on it. Things like that, even a small amount, can cross-contaminate what was previously a gluten-free food. So the best way to go gluten-free, really, is you learn all these things, you learn to read labels, you learn to look for the hidden words, like natural flavours, and so on, and you cook all your own meals. And that's what I've been doing since I was about 20. And so because of that, it's pretty easy for me to avoid gluten but sometimes I take what I call a calculated risk and that could be eating at a restaurant that offers gluten-free foods but knowing that there's a potential for cross-contamination in the kitchen or eating a baked good that is gluten-free but is made by a baker who also makes regular food and that's basically the risk that I took recently um I found a really good coffee shop called Treatment Coffee Company and it's in Massillon and um, they do this great coffee called the Honey Badger and it's basically a um, it's a latte that they uh, when they steam it they put the honey in and then they steam it so it mixes through it's really really good Uh, traditionally they make it with half and half but that's too much for me so I usually have it with like two percent milk or something it's very very yummy they use local honey for it And I noticed while I was there that they had gluten-free muffins. And there's one in particular, it's a pumpkin muffin with a cream cheese topping. And it's absolutely incredible. It's like the perfect mix of pumpkin and spice. It has a crunchy, like a crunchy, almost coffee cake topping to it with the cream cheese on top. It's just absolutely delectable. It's probably one of the best pumpkin baked goods I've ever had. And so obviously I got it. And I noticed that because we don't go there very often if I had one of these pumpkin muffins every couple or few weeks I was fine but if I went like every weekend for a while so I had at least one a week I started developing symptoms and I think I finally crossed the barrier of pushing it too far because last week I had an absolutely appalling migraine my stomach hurt I was nauseated had some sort of digestive distress it was not fun I felt miserable and I realized that yeah I pushed my luck too far and um, I needed to be a little bit more careful so for the past week I have been sleeping a huge amount Uh, it was actually very hard for me to stay awake during the day I kind of you know went back to all my safe foods and was sort of babying my stomach and just managing the headaches which isn't fun but it happens um so yeah, if anyone out there is also celiac or, you know, has a allergy or whatever, I think you you understand what I mean. Like some days it just, it feels like it's worth the risk, but you always have to be on top of it because you never know when you will make a mistake or like the risk does not pay off. 
And so perhaps sort of unsurprisingly, um, from, you know, getting glutened, as I call it, and not feeling great. Uh, mentally, I've been a little low. We've also had some gray, cold days. Um, and also, interestingly, there's a psychological side effect to glutening, which I mentioned above. You know, people who weren't diagnosed for a long time often suffer psychological side effects. And even after you've been diagnosed, sometimes you might find that if you're exposed to gluten, that you suffer depressive episodes or have anxiety spikes or something. It's it's all very interesting. And and they don't fully understand why that happens. Um, but anyway, so, you know, I felt a little low. And um, so I've been doing some different self-care things. And I just sort of wanted to share, you know, maybe they're helpful to other people. So as I've said before, for my seasonal affective disorder, I use my lamp, my light therapy lamp. But also if the sun is out and you have the opportunity to go out, I do recommend bundling up, even if it's cold, and getting out there because the natural sunlight on your face is going to have a much bigger difference than just the uh, the light therapy lamp. And if you have a puppy, maybe that's a great time to bundle your puppy up and go out with them. I did that and it did help a lot getting some fresh air, a nice brisk four mile hike with my little man. So that was good. Um, the other thing I suggest is... Um, set a schedule it doesn't have to be rigid but like for instance I am telling myself I have to do some kind of exercise every day so either the stationary bike or yoga or taking one of the dogs for a walk or doing like a couple of hours of sort of more strenuous strenuous cleaning just something that gets me moving and sweating uh every day and having that has helped a lot because it's you know it's good for your physical body but it's good for your mental health as well I'm also looking into maybe doing five minutes of meditation every day this is a little bit more tricky but because I'm terrible about making myself sit still but that could be something uh pick up a hobby so I actually have tried to get back to teaching myself guitar I don't know how much longer that's going to last though because I've noticed that probably unsurprisingly it is causing some flare-up of nerve issues in my hand um the I mentioned I have carpal tunnel in both hands but this is the hand that I fell on recently and sort of suffered a bit from the fall and I've noticed some more tingling and numbness going on there so I'm going to stick with it as long as I can uh but it might have to go on the back burner I also as of last night just started cross stitch again (laughs) just gives me something to concentrate on and then the other thing I wanted to say was yes set a schedule but also don't get trapped into anything too strict or too many rules so I kind of realized that I set these rules for myself to keep myself motivated Um, but sometimes the rules become a habit and they've stopped serving me so for instance and this is kind of a weird one but last winter we had the house temperature set at 68 degrees and we did this because it's like a manageable temperature it keeps the energy bill a little lower Um, it felt like it was sort of the best range for everyone and all the animals and last winter I was freezing almost all the time at night I slept in leggings a t-shirt a long sleeve top and then a hoodie over the top of that in bed with a duvet two blankets on top and the heater on and and I just thought it was me being I don't know too sensitive to the cold or whatever and it never even occurred to me to turn the heat up well this 
past winter or this current winter or whatever we had turned the heat up a couple of days when I got cold and it made the biggest difference like now we're at 70 degrees and I just can maintain a body temperature now and I don't need all these layers all the time like don't get me wrong you know my husband's swanning around the house in a t-shirt and pajama pants and no socks and I'm wearing you know fleece pants thick winter socks and at least three layers but I actually am comfortable in this whereas last winter I was always cold and I realized that this kind of rule I'd set for us was no longer serving me and I just what is two degrees difference it's nothing just get put it a house temperature on at 70 for goodness sakes and be comfortable and so that's what I've been doing and on a similar vein you know if you tell yourself I'm going to work out every day but you feel like it's not serving you you know if you feel like you really needed to skip one day because you felt just so ill or you felt like you really didn't have time for it and it was making you stressed, well, just skip it that day. You know, don't don't let yourself get trapped in these rules we set as a way of coping because sometimes it's time to reevaluate those rules and make sure they serve you. Uh, one last thing I wanted to say was that I think I mentioned before when I switched to these medications that I suddenly started enjoying music a lot more. So I was listening to it more. I was singing along to it. um, And I was, you know, just felt a a lot more upbeat and connected. And I really enjoyed it. And so something that I do every day is for less fun chores, like going out in the morning when it's snow outside and it's cold, picking up dog poo because someone has to do it I like to put on my music and if I'm really having a hard time getting motivated I like to put on songs that I'll sing along to so it's like me outside bundled up with my headphones in singing random portions of song and I have kind of an eclectic taste so uh, I listen to everything from show tunes to Lizzo to Florence and the Machine to Disney songs to whatever so I sometimes wonder if if my neighbors were out and they just see me walking back and forth in a grid pattern so I don't miss any dog poo and every one minute I'm singing along to Hamilton and the next minute I'm singing along to like Lizzo or whatever um, I'm sure I look absolutely bonkers but you know it gets me through it gets me through my chores it gives me kind of a little you know upbeat feeling and um and I can power through it Oh, and also in terms of setting a schedule, it doesn't have to be something like what I said about exercising. So it's also something that I've set for myself is, and I think a lot of people are struggling with this right now, showering every day. So I want to seem like I'm gross, but I have noticed that a lot of people who work from home have really fallen into this whole like pajama lifestyle. They're not showering very often. If they wear makeup they never do their makeup anymore or they only wear sloggies they'd never put on like clothes that they would usually wear for work and so one thing that I've been doing the past couple of weeks is I basically told myself that I have to have a shower every day regardless if I get sweaty or not because it's just you know it's self-care it's good for me it's something that I can kind of like rely on as a constant and then other times what I've done is I have dressed up for no reason I'll put on a really nice sweater and a really nice like pair of pants maybe I'll put on a little lip gloss just to give me that reminder that that part of my life isn't done that I can still dress up I think it's really easy if you 
see yourself every day wearing sloggies and you know not really doing all the things that you did when you used to work out in the world um to kind of get a little down on yourself and to think that maybe you're you're kind of a scruff and there's nothing to do about it so um yeah that would be my suggestion (laughs) just whatever works for you go ahead and do that and so yeah so I hope some of these self-care suggestions are hopeful uh useful for you and that um you guys are getting on okay and you have a good support system you're taking care of yourselves um you know where to find me leave me a message uh let me know what your self-care tips are I'm always looking to learn something new and um I will be back in two weeks to carry on this book review so until then hug your hands and then wash your hands take care guys bye bye